Welcome to the John Papaloni Show. Today we have Tony Acosta. Tony, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Absolute pleasure. And it is going to be a very fun topic because we're going to be talking real estate. That's yes. one of my favorite topics. So why don't we start off with a uh, let everyone know who you are, what you do, and how you got here. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So again, my name is Tony Acosta. I was born and raised in the great state of Utah. I've lived here all my life. As far as real estate goes, I got into the real estate industry back in 2012. I started just as a regular showing agent. I didn't have any experience. I had never run a business before or done any kind of sales. The only job I had was a Mexican restaurant in high school. And so I started just simply showing properties, going with people, opening the door, answering questions. And I did that up until 2017. In 2017, I became principal broker of that brokerage. And at that point, basically everything changed for me because I went from doing showings or being with my own clients to now being responsible for a team and training them and trying to make them effective and doing material, creating material, creating systems. And so it really was kind of a 180 degree turn for me, but it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. Uh, in 2017. In 2019, I became a member of the Forbes Real Estate Council. And once again, I was in the room with people that had these huge teams. There was a little bit of imposter syndrome there that I had to get over, but I loved learning from people who were doing so much better than I was that were further along the path than I was at that time. In 2022, I opened up my own brokerage. And so I grew that, I operated that on, on my own. And so uh, now I'm still in real estate doing development deals and things like that. But it's been quite the journey from just opening doors and being a showing agent to now uh, owning my own agency. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. It would be. Which brings up the question, why real estate in general? Like, I mean, there's so many directions you could have gone. Yeah, so many directions. And actually, I got lucky and real estate kind of fell in my lap in the sense that uh, I served a two-year mission for my church. And as soon as I came back, we were just at a burger joint on a random Thursday and we ran into one of my parents' high school buddies. And he was already successful. He was already a broker. He was already a top producer. And at that point in his career, he had more clients than he had time to show properties to. And so he goes to my parents and he basically says, hey, what is your son doing? At the time, I was kind of debating, should I go to college? I was Maybe I was going to go to Idaho. I didn't really know what I was going to do. And so he said, hey, well, if he's interested, I've got this gig and it's a good gig. It's a real estate gig. And he set up an appointment uh, with me. And it was a funny story because I was 22 years old and my mom dragged me to this meeting. She sat in it with me at 22 years old. But he basically explained, this is what I do. This is real estate. This is what I need from you. Just I'll give you the clients, just go open the doors, answer basic questions, and this is how it works. And so I did that and it worked out. I mean, we're still here 11 years later. Wow. Wow. Right. Like, like that, that I've never heard that story before. Like, in all honesty, I like I'm used to somebody's like, oh, I did this for the, my life. I got tired of this. I wasn't happy or, um, you know what? I grew up, I thought I was going in this direction and I found opportunity here or something along those lines. I've never gotten the, like someone knocked on my door and told me basically I was going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, when people ask me, why'd you get into real estate? I'm like, because my mom told me to literally, that's why I got into real estate. And uh, here we are, you know, we've, we've been able to learn a lot. I've fallen in love with the process and just trying to help individuals reach those real estate goals. It's been very fulfilling and very rewarding. 
Right. Well, the path you took, you're obviously getting leads from the person who got you on board. So technically speaking, so I guess you were on a team. I was. That was your. Yes. Right. Which, which, which I'm going to go, what I usually go later, I'm going to bring up now since we're in this. Like when someone's starting out, would you recommend they join a team or start on their own? Or is it really based on the individual? Like what would your criteria be for that? Great question. To some degree, I think it is subjective to the individual, but overall, I would definitely recommend starting on a team simply because there's so much that you don't know. And if you can attach yourself to a good mentor, I was blessed with a very good mentor who took the time to explain things to me, provided me leads because I didn't know how to generate leads. And that's where most agents and small business owners in general struggle with lead generation. So I didn't have to worry about that early on. I just kind of came in and started working with people. And that's a tremendous benefit because I got to see on day one, a lot of different scenarios, a lot of different people and their needs and the loan program and areas. And so very quickly, I got to learn my market from working with a bunch of people when if I would have done it by myself, quite frankly, it would have taken me much longer because I would have had to get the lead generation in place and maybe train myself, buy courses. They may have been good. They may have been bad. And so I definitely recommend a team structure first while you learn and you establish that solid foundation then later if you want to break off and do your own thing that's fine but the team element i think early on is very important that makes sense that makes sense right like what would your rebuttal be with uh you know because let's be honest when you join a team most teams and we're going to say 90 percent if not a hundred you know when they turn out the splits are usually 50 50 and that's after the broker split so a lot of people uh you know i get a little worried because we don't get into the business thinking we're going to struggle we get into the business thinking that we're going to get in, all our friends are going to buy, all our family is going to buy with us. And the reality is I'll give everybody the uh, the secret here. In the first two years, they're all watching to see what you do. They're going to use everyone but you. That's and true. with that being said, you know, so their worry is that they're going to miss out on all this money because 50%, oh my God, that's a lot. What would your uh, comment be? Yeah, that's a very common sentiment and i get it i felt it i mean when i first started for these showings that i was doing he was paying me 400 per client and i knew the math right like i knew it was a three percent commission and back then it was a two hundred thousand dollar home there were two hundred thousand dollars back then and so i knew all right six thousand dollar check i'm driving around i'm the one that's making the appointments and so and i was only getting 400 what i would say to that is there is a cost to learn at least for me, there was, I was willing to pay that price because I understood early on that I needed to learn that there were a lot of things that I did not know. And so I was willing to pay that price for a period of time. And that length of time can be different for everyone. For some, it might be six months. For some, it might be a year. I know people that will never leave a team structure because they're used to it and they're okay with paying a high split if they don't have to do the lead generation activities and they don't have to worry about those kinds of things. So it, it really just kind of depends on your personality. Again, some will say, if you provide me deals, if you provide me leads and buyers, then I'm fine splitting it with you because I don't want to do the marketing versus someone that says, well, no, I want to maximize my upside. So I will put in the time and the work to learn how to lead gen, to learn systems, to establish everything so that I can make more money. And so I think both work, but especially early in my experience and the experience of the agents that I've been able to work with, uh, learning does have a cost associated to it. And I think you should pay it 
for as long as you feel comfortable paying it. Absolutely. Now, I, I just from looking over your stuff and then just seeing and, and based on how you're answering everything, you're obviously development is a big part of your uh, career. Uh, so I'm going to get into my question, which is about coaching. How do you feel about coaching? And did at what point did you get coaching? Did you get coaching? Are you doing coaching? So your overall thoughts on the coaching aspect is what I'm getting at. Yeah, coaching is interesting because I think there are two kinds of coaches. There are the coaches that just make money coaching. And there are the coaches that do the thing and help other people also do the thing. And so I was blessed with a very good mentor slash coach early on that he was already winning. And so I see that as a tremendous benefit. Now, 10 years later, that really shortened the learning curve. But sometimes it takes a little bit of trial and error to try to find the appropriate individual, the person that is willing to give you the time of day, that wants to see you grow, that wants to see you learn and wants to see you win. Oftentimes what happens is there are coaches that they simply live off of their coaching. And so as many students as they can have, the better because that's the more money that they're going to make. And so sometimes people will, they'll pay into these coaching programs, they'll get very little attention. There's very little opportunity for one-on-ones to ask specific questions. Sometimes it's just watch these, this series of videos and that's the coaching. I think early on, you need a little bit more than that. And in my experience, being able to sit down, analyze a deal, learn what the different programs were, was highly beneficial. So uh, I do do coaching and I try to pass on what I learned and I try to be the coach that I wish I had and vice versa. And so I think that you might have to jump around with different mentors or coaches or brokers or agencies. But once you find the right person, then go all in, be coachable, be willing to learn, be willing to put in the time and uh, you'll be on your way. And if you can do that, I think you'll be miles ahead of a lot of other agents that, as you said, sometimes we have that expectation that we're going to get our license and we're going to crush it. We're just going to be a baller and we're going to buy the BMW and we're going to be an entrepreneur. It doesn't really work out that way. No, definitely not. In fact, any tip for anybody watching, if you see a realtor who's had their license for one to two years and they're driving that BMW, more than likely it's a lease and not a lease because of a write-off. It's a lease because they can't afford to pay it. Uh, facts. Facts. <laughs> it's too much. Uh, I found in this industry, there's too much fake it till you make it. Oh, so much. And the problem is sometimes it's taught that way. Yeah. There are literally brokers agencies that will encourage a certain image in order to appear successful. Uh, I fell into that for a time. I mean, I'll be quite honest with you. I did the fake Rolex. I did. It cost me 400 bucks. Like I did it. And people are going to find out. I mean, the people in your inner circle, they know. At the time I was still living with my parents. And so it just wasn't congruent. I was trying to put on a front with a fake Rolex when I was still living with my in my parents' basement, literally. And so it doesn't work. I think that the way to survive in this industry is to really become an expert, really try to provide value to people and try to steer away from that flashiness that I feel like in today's society, more and more, that just turns people off. Yeah, I get that, which I'm going to bring up a little bit of a story because we went, oh, I think we all go through a portion of it, whether we go through it directly or we see it directly in front of us. And when I joined my original brokerage, which ironically is where I'm at now, what ended up happening is the original broker manager, the, uh, you know, that was there at the time, he, um, he was doing the uh, training course. 
And I remember we're in the training course and all that. And he was talking about it and he goes, Hey, why are we in this business? He goes, you know, a lot of you're going to say, cause you want to help clients. You want to help people and blah, 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 blah. He goes, but what's the real, you know, real deep down reason. And he goes money. And he goes, we all know that there's money in this business. Just look outside, look at the parking lot, look at all the cars and stupid me can't keep my mouth shut. And I put myself in a little bit odd predicament. And I said, yeah, but those cars are rented. <laughs> Right. Because to me, a lease is a rental. Yes. Of course. <laughs> right. And I don't really, I didn't, it's one of those things that I, I swear to God, I didn't intend to say it out loud. It was just one of those things that, uh, it, I, it, you know, I thought it and I blurted it out and then realized I said it when everyone was staring at me. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you're not wrong though. You're not wrong at all. <laughs> yeah. And that was my point. So that was kind of the eye opener. I'm, uh, you know, for me, and that's when I started realizing how much the fake it to make it was being pushed. Yeah, it's so harmful. It, it really is harmful because you get yourself in this place where now you overextend yourself. And even if it's a lease, if you get a BMW lease, it's $600 a month or whatever it is, and you're just getting started. And if you do that early, then that, that's $600 less that you can put into learning, into marketing, into whatever is actually going to grow your business. And if you stack a couple of those on top of each other, now you're in a hole where you need $3,200 a month just to keep up with the lifestyle that you're not ready to have in the first place. And don't forget, we're in a business that most people, not, not everybody, but most people are not getting work like a friggin' nine to five job where they have something every week or every month. So even if you put that $600 a month in an emergency fund, because there's going to be a time where you're not going to get paid for like three, four months. And I'll give you an example. You can, it's still possible to make sales and not get paid the next year. And here's an example, new construction. What are you going to do? Avoid new construction. A customer wants that and say, I don't do that because I don't want to get paid next year. Right? Like, so you end up doing that. And I did that in 2022. My 2022 finances looked horrendous. Uh, at the end of 2021, I sold new construction. I did it for like three months straight. So great. You get that initial check, which is the smallest amount. And then you don't get paid too much later for the next balance. So you're going six months without getting paid. And that's an, that's the balance of the small check. Like, because what it is, for example, new construction here pays just a four or 5%, depending, right? And just say that check is for argument's sake, 20 grand, we're going to say. So initially you get, you're like, I, I think you get 1% of the uh, four. So 1% would be in this case, if it was 20, it was 5,000. Then you get another 1% six months later. And then you get the 2% or balance whenever it closed, which could be a year, two, three years later. So the point is, if you got into those deals, that could be a very, very painful experience because it takes time to collect. And I'll tell you now, builders are never on time. I, I said you get paid in the month and I get paid in six months. That's when they say they will pay you. You don't actually get it on time. So my point is that that is good business. And that 4% is actually higher than if you do a resale. So the catch is you got to wait to get paid. Now, if you don't have an emergency fund and you have that $600 a month lease, you're in trouble. You're in huge trouble. And I tell agents this all the time, especially when they first start and they say, well, I've got my job. I've got this part-time job. I'm not sure when should I quit. I talk about the emergency fund, exactly what you said. I mean, until you have three to six months, if you can go eight months, 10 months, I mean, as big as it is, the better, but at least six months of expenses saved up, you should not quit your job. Because I, I learned this early on, there's so many points in the transaction where it can fall apart. It can fall apart during the inspection, it can fall apart during the appraisal, during the financing period. I have had people that on the day of closing say, you know what, I'm out. 
And they don't care if they lose earnest money or sellers that they say, I don't want to sell. I, now that I'm here, I, I don't want to do it. And you can't force someone to do something that they don't want to do. But if that happens or if the deal falls apart a couple of days before closing for something that is not your fault, whether whatever happens, you hear these horror stories of people when they tank their credit or whatever it is, you don't get paid. All the work that you did showing properties, getting them under contract, you make zero. And so it can be very un unpredictable. So I love that uh, point of view of the emergency fund, fundamentally yeah, critical. I agree. And that's the thing, right? And, and like you said, even on closing day, look, even on closing day, people say, oh, they'll lose the deposit, whatever, they're going to get sued. Great. That's fine and dandy. Even if the seller sues the buyer, buyer sues the seller, depending which way it went. And even if they win judgment, the judgment's not going to go turn around and said, okay, well, you know what? Your realtor was out of uh, pocket too. So we got to pay him too. That won't happen. That won't happen. Basically, something will get settled between buyer and seller and the realtor gets the boot. That's what it comes down to. 100%. Now, it doesn't happen often, but it does happen. And so if it happens to you, yeah, you got to have something to fall back on 100%. Right. And now look, let's look at the lenders. The lenders don't have the same rules as everybody else. A lender can actually back out of the deal 24 hours before closing. Imagine you have a firm deal and they told you're getting a lending. And, then I, and this happened to me, believe it or not. At uh, 4 p.m. on Thursday, we had the closing at uh, on Friday. At 4 p.m. Thursday, I was given notice that they decided to not fund me anymore. No. And um, that was revolving around an exception. I had um, my, my criteria was off by like 0.2%. And they made an exception for that 0.2%. But the day before, they decided they didn't want to anymore. They took it away. Oh. Yeah. So it's one of now I was able to overcome that. And actually, to be honest, I was able to satisfy that 2.2% to get in numbers, mm. like in line. And then they backtracked, but some might not be able to do that. That's my point, right? So then what happens? You're done on your control. <laughs> yeah, That's <laughs> the thing. It's beyond your control. And that was hard for me to learn at first, all of the factors and variables beyond my control, especially with me that I, I try to get better at this, but control freak all the way. And so when I felt that I was at the mercy of these underwriters and they were giving me a hard time and, oh, it was so frustrating. So yeah, absolutely. You have to learn how to organize your finances, how to always have leads that are coming in and just understand that a lead that comes in today, as you well said, you may not, this might be something that you're going to get paid on in 12 months. And so that's also where agents struggle because as you said, you have a closing and then you're unemployed again and you're trying to find the next deal and trying to survive. That's why there's that crazy stat that most agents, a huge percentage of agents only sell three, four, five homes a year and in between, they're just starting over. We're always starting over and trying to find that next commission check. Right, which uh, bottom line is that you have to get very good at managing your money. And it's easy to fall for the uh, shiny object syndrome. It's easy to fall to you know all the new tech that comes out. Oh, you got to get on board. You got to be first. But I'm going to tell you something. This is the only industry I've been in where I've seen top producers. Well, look, some one of the teachers that I had when I was in the course, she was a realtor, obviously, like, yeah, because a lot of times in the, in, at least here, I don't know about the States, where a lot of times it's other uh, agents that are teaching in the, in the courses. It was interesting because that opened my eyes because she got her car repossessed while we were in class. No. And uh, for missed payments. And this was like a top producer too, right? Someone that you, that you could was clearly had a lot of transactions. And I'm going, how is that possible? 
How is missed that a couple of mortgage payments, missed car payments. Uh, why high expenses? And it's not as simple as just going there and getting paid because a lot of times you're entertaining clients too. That there's a budget for that. There's uh, you know, a lot of times you do nice gestures. You have a closing gift that costs money too. staging that costs money. Like everything costs money. There's you're going to notice when you get in this business, there's always somebody knocking on your door, wanting to get paid for something always. And, and where I'm going with this is right. And that, if that was my only one, I, I seem to notice like even now, especially now that it's slowed down, a lot of people that were living high and fly that were uh, even doing 100 to 200 transactions a year, I see them struggling. I see them like people that I thought had it made, you know, turn to me and say, hey, you know what? I'm a little short this week. Can you lend me 100 bucks? <laughs> I'm crazy. like, really? Crazy. Really? So it just made me open my eyes that you can't look at the income. You got to look, you got to have money put away. You have to be on a serious budget. Serious budget. And that's to say nothing of taxes. Oh man, I got myself in such a tax hole early on in my career because I didn't know, like I, I spent all the money. And then next thing you know, the next year comes around and it's like, Hey, guess what? You owe the IRS $25,000. <laughs> what? Excuse me. And so that's another aspect to it. And it's something that hopefully the brokers or wherever you're at, they can help you with some of those tools. But I didn't know that early on. I didn't have the tax training or how to you know, track your expenses and all of those things, all of that accounting stuff, I completely missed for the first three years of my career. And it got me into serious trouble where I had to dig myself out of a hole. And so, yeah, on top of everything that you said, then add on the tax stuff. And it's a challenge. It's, it's absolutely a challenge. But if you can get it right, if you can focus on the right things, if you can identify your income producing activities, if you can try to provide value, it can be a very high paying and rewarding industry, but it's not for everyone. The stress is high. The uncertainty can be high, uh, but that's, I think with anything with high reward comes high risk. 100%, which uh, going there, right? Let, let's label who's this industry not for. So I think it's for those who do not have the ability to do what you just said who are not organized with their money, who feel an insecurity to show a certain lifestyle above what they have. There are people that, if you tell them to live below their means, they just they just can't. It makes them feel like they're less. It, makes, it hurts their self-esteem. They tie their identity to things. So to the car, to the house. If you don't have the ability to manage stress, and understand that there are variables beyond your control. I've had to improve my stress management dramatically because the uncertainty of these deals, uh, it can often be overwhelming. I would say someone that does not enjoy being around other people, that is not a good communicator, that doesn't like answering questions, that is easily annoyed by people, I think you're gonna struggle in this business if you have some of those traits. Well said, I believe that as well. Um, and look, sometimes I would say that there are moments where we all have some of that in us too, even, you know, if we are meant for the business, the difference is that most of us can control it and we're having bad moments, not a bad experience. That's key. And there's a difference. <laughs> yep. And learning to identify it, learning to identify, Hey, if there's a client that just rubs me the wrong way, what do you do in that situation? Do you have the ability to, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I go on social media and I hear agents bashing on their clients. 
talking trash about their clients or saying, hey, I had this listing presentation and the seller is an idiot because of this, 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 and this, or I have this buyer that I've showed five homes to and they won't make a decision and the wife is so annoying and she, I mean, you can't have that, right? You can't no. have that. See, which is, this is irking me because it's touching a point that I'm, and irking me in the way that I'm, I'm agreeing with you, right? And uh, it's touching certain things I see. There's, uh, and I'll give you two examples. One, one example is that everything I do, I do for my client and I wouldn't be here without them and I would never do anything selfishly for myself because it's all about them. And then three days later on that same internet board or whatever it is, you turn around and say, well, this listing, it only pays 1% and I usually don't do it for less than 2%. Uh, my client really wants this house and I don't really want to show it to them because of the 1% and I don't expect my clients to pay them. I don't know what to do. What do you think? You know, is there anything I can do about this? I mean, obviously I'll show them the house if I have to, but <laughs> uh, you know, I prefer to show them something else or figure this out. You know, and that same person three days earlier, oh, it's always about my clients. Everything's about, I would do it for free and not get paid. Well, wait a minute. BS. You said that. BS. And now, because it's 1% instead of 2%, you're asking if you even have to show it. I thought you'd do it for free. Yeah. And then second one is the girl tried to convince people that she bought a Mercedes, not for herself because she doesn't want a Mercedes. She's there <laughs> looking after her clients. Wow. And I'm like, are you in the car business or are you in the house business? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm in the house business. Then why the hell will your clients care what car you have? They're not buying the car from you. They're buying a house. But but you said it though. We think people care. Yeah. We think people care and people don't care. I mean, if they if your car is like trash, okay, maybe. If it's like extremely just destroyed. But if you have just a basic car that you take care of, your car's clean, and people don't care. They are not worried about that. They're worried about what can you do for me? How are you going to help me achieve this goal? But often we get it confused and we convince ourselves. I have seen people train and coaches tell people that you, you got to do it. You got to have the car. You got to have the expensive suit because people care. I have learned people don't care. Yeah, exactly. Now, look, as long as you don't look like you're the guy who's Sure. you know, begging for change. Sure. You're doing good. If you look like you're the guy for begging for this begging for change on the corner. Yes. You need to do something about that. Of course. But as long as you're a step above that, there's people out there that will relate to you. 100%. 100%. And it's funny because there are, and I've done polls on this. Everybody's different, right? But there are individuals out there that don't feel comfortable. If you go do showings in a three piece suit and a Rolex, they don't relate to you, but we think that everybody will. And so I think it's just being mindful, right? Some folks will feel more comfortable if you're well, well-groomed, just business casual in a polo and some slacks, that's good enough. You might make, you might actually be counterproductive if you show up in the middle of July in a three-piece suit to try to do these showings. It's awkward. It's weird. Yeah. It's about knowing your audience and your clientele, right? Because there's also people out there that if you show up in jeans, they're going to look at it and go, Ooh, right. Is this guy professional? What era is your client in? What are they accustomed to? Now, if you're, if it's somebody you want, you know, that, you know, and they're always walking around in a three piece suit, even on a Sunday, they may be the ones that expect you to be in a suit. Right. But if it's someone who's walking around in jogging pants and now all of a sudden they're going to see it, they want to see a place and they're in jeans, you wearing that suit makes them feel awkward. Yeah. I agree 100%. And I think it's just understanding that your value, your true value comes from what's up here. 
It comes yes. from the advice that you can give. It comes from your negotiation skills. It comes from your experience. Everything else is just trying to decorate the actual thing. So I think it's just not getting confused where the thinking that the value is the clothing or the value is the vehicle. The value is what you've learned and what you can pass on and how you can help somebody understand the process, get a good deal, have a smooth transaction. That's where the value lies. If you can do that, then what you wear aside from, as you said, junky stuff just really doesn't matter too much. 100%. Exactly. I, I think what we're calling is becoming the knowledge broker. There we go. That's the term. Yeah. Love that. So with that being said, now you opened up your own brokerage. What bro What's the name of the brokerage? It's 1% list Wasatch Front. Love it. Love it. Why did you do that? What was the concept behind it? And what was the inspiration to be on your own? So I'll tell you the politically correct answer and I'll tell you the real answer. Okay. <laughs> the politically correct answer is, and this isn't a lie. It's I genuinely believe that technology helps things be more efficient, be less expensive, be easier to achieve. And so I believe that much of the savings that technology brings a real estate industry have been kind of taken by the brokers and the agents. I don't see real tangible savings that have yet reached the end consumer. So in a market like mine, where it's a seller's market, I believe that with the proper systems, we can actually provide high level service for less and still be profitable, right? So the model was, is a discount model. And so what I found was that 70% plus of people that were selling a home then had to buy another one. So we would do a discount service for the listing and we'd pick up a bunch of buyers and it just worked. It was a good marketing vehicle for me. People liked it. People, it was something that other agents thought was crazy, but it works for me. That's the politically correct answer. The other answer is when I left that initial brokerage, it was kind of a, it wasn't the nicest departure, if you will. Uh, and so I had this ego that I wanted to prove to myself and my former broker that I could do this, that I could be the man, that I could also run a successful brokerage. And so uh, that had its pros and cons. I was talking to my wife about this yesterday of sometimes you have to find your motivation. My motivation for starting my own brokerage versus just going somewhere else was a little bit of anger, a little bit of resentment. I wanted to really stick it to someone and just prove it. Uh, and that was kind of the fuel a little bit. But on the consumer side, it was, it was just genuinely trying to bring not something different because the discount model has always existed, but just try to kind of push it and bring it to the forefront just a little bit more. Yeah, I got that. I get it. I get it. Now, we all have those emotional moments. I had it myself before. I was at a uh, different brokerage than I was at now. And uh, I thought someone chopped my grass. I mean, it was more to it than that, but I think that's the easiest way to describe it. And I got irritated, like really, really irritated. So I said, okay, this is the game we're going to play because we were. I think it was going to be something like where we're going to work on it together. And then I got chopped. Mm. So I said, okay, that's the route we're going to play. Let's, let's play. Let's play. And this is back <laughs> in the day when Facebook still allowed you to market based on postal codes or in your ah, case, zip codes. Yes. Like this before all that change. And I said, okay, this person only works one area. Asian. That person Boom. can't leave that area. Yeah. So I said, okay, game on. Let's play. <laughs> I did. I 
put in money on Facebook and I said, everybody in this area, I will list your home and help you find a home for 1%. <laughs> yes. Right. And this is back in the day when, uh, when, uh, 5%, uh, you know, two and a half and two and a half wasn't so uncommon, right? Even some places were still doing six, right? So, and I, here I am, I'm saying, Oh, I'll help you for 1%. What was, right? what was the, uh, if you don't mind me asking, what was the response you got from other agents? I don't, nobody said anything to me. Some of their eyes opened up when they saw it, right? Like, and you see them and they looked at it and go, Hey, I saw your ad. And they're just like, you know what I mean? But they didn't say a word, yeah. but uh, I was, I, I was told by somebody that, uh, that a lot of people were intimidated by me in the office. So that might've had something to do with it. Yeah. But, um, I, I don't know. Right. Like I see myself as a friendly person. I talk to everybody and that goes to prove branding, right? Because I have a certain brand, like even through doing the podcast and my content, I go to the local grocery store and people, uh, come up to me and say, Hey, I saw you on Instagram. I have a question for you. Right. So I'm getting more of that today than before, but the point is I was getting it a lot, right? So when I switched to one of the other brokerages, we were talking and negotiating and the guy said to me, let's be point blank. I know who you are. Oh, <laughs> 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 right. So, so obviously I built out a reputation yeah. and uh, I was proud of that same brokerage I was at. We were we went to a lunch in the whole brokerage. The minute the owner of the brokerage went to the washroom, uh, the guy beside me, I was getting a cold shoulder from him the whole time and I couldn't figure out it. Okay, maybe I just don't know him, right? Maybe not everybody talks to everybody, maybe whatever, right? The guy goes to the bathroom, he turns to me, he goes, You should go back to where you came from. No. You do not belong here. Just like yeah, that. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, You Toronto people come here and take our business and uh and I'm going, wait a minute, whoa, 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 whoa. I live around the corner from here. Maybe I was born and raised in Toronto, but I moved out here. I've been out here for four years. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, what do you mean go back to where I came from? Oh. I am basically your neighbor. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, what? That's like, I go, I go, the issue isn't me. The issue is that you don't want to do your job. That's right? it. And then the owner came back and he went all quiet. But that's it though. Crazy, crazy. Because there's this idea. When somebody says, you're taking my business. This is a meritocracy, my friend. Like this is, if there's one buyer or seller out there, they're going to pick the person that makes them feel comfortable, that provides value, that demonstrates expertise. You don't own anybody. And this is I something know. that I often repeat because I see it so much of people that say, that's my client. When, yeah, you, you listed their house three years ago, bro. What do you mean that's your client? And all of a sudden they choose a different agent. And now the original agent is angry because we took their business. It's BS that, that that's not the way anything works. So if we feel that we own our client, I own you, John, cause I helped you buy a, a house four years ago and now you have to use me every single time. So I don't even have to talk to you. I don't even have to follow up with you or provide any other value. Cause I've stamped you to me forever because you bought a home in 2019, a lot of agents genuinely believe that. And that's why there's these sentiments of, hey, John, you're taking my business. It's not true. I agree with you. Here, people don't leave because, oh, well, I gave uh, Tony business already. So let me try giving somebody else business. That's not what they leave. People are creatures of comfort. Why do most people fail? because they get comfortable in their damn job. They get comfortable doing what they want to do and they don't want to do anything else. So why would their business relationships be any different? 
They left because they became uncomfortable with you and they became uncomfortable with you because they probably haven't heard from you in four years and you're only knocking on the door when you want a friggin' check. And it's taking ownership of that and being self-aware that that's how it is. And really it's just thinking about how we operate. What, do you do that? I mean, do you shop around? Do you ask for, I mean, that's just normal behavior. And to think that it's different when people are shopping for a real estate agent or for a property than anything else is probably the most harmful and naive point of view that permeates the industry. And I would be so happy to see it go away and just have everybody to understand, guys, this is a meritocracy. It's healthy competition, even though sometimes some people it's not so healthy, but we're just here to provide value and let the chips fall where they may. If somebody picks somebody else, it's because that person did something that you didn't, period. So try to improve, try to be better, try to improve on your messaging. Some people are going to resonate with you. Some people aren't, but nobody's taking anything from you, man. I mean, this it's abundant. There are th thousands of homes that get sold every single day. If you're not closing, it's not anybody else's fault but your own. Yes, exactly. And it and even goes back to when the... the Let's be honest. Everyone keeps saying the same damn thing. Inventory is low. Yes, less people are selling homes. In 2020 and 2021, 122,000 homes were sold in Ontario, where I am. Guess what? Now they're expecting 74,000. Ooh, there's less business. Guess what? It doesn't mean there's less business for you. It, the number of homes sold is not a reflection on the number you sell because when there was 122,000, did you sell all 122,000? Well, no. Did you sell even a thousand of them? No. What did you sell? Oh, 14. Oh, so you mean to tell me that because 122,000 became 78,000, you can't still find 14 people in that number? Yeah, it's terrible. The, the, the question isn't, is there houses to sell? The question is, have you done your due diligence and your job well enough that somebody in that 70,000 is going to call you? Yep. And it's just being flexible. And when I realized that, when that clicked for me, John, when I realized hundreds of homes are sold every single day, every day, look at the, look at the numbers, look at the data, regardless of market, regardless of raise, it does not matter. Hundreds of homes are sold every single day. Everything changed. And now it's just a matter of seeing, okay, what is the landscape? Where is the opportunity? And how can I help people? I'll be honest, over the next 90 days, over the last 90 days, 120 days, I've done a bunch of seller finance. People that, hey, rates are super high. They don't qualify the same way, but they've got money. And so we can secure a seller finance for a 4%, 5% rate versus seven and a half. They're happy to do so. But if I just sit here and complain about Joe Biden and the interest rates and the Fed, you get nowhere, man. I mean, hundreds of homes are sold every day. If you're not selling them, it's not the government's fault. Exactly. That's exactly my point. Look, here's another point I want to make before I move on to the next topic. 2020 was a fantastic year for me. 2021 was a fantastic year for me. 2022 was a horrendous year for me. 2023 has been phenomenal. It is, if I go on the same pace I'm on now, it'll be better than my 2021, which was my best year to date. Love it. Now, where my point is, if you're going to take the credit for the best years and the great years, you have to take the credit for the years that you have failed. Ooh, say that again, John. Say that again for the people in the back. Exactly. If you have taken credit for your successful years, you have to take credit for the years that you have failed. 
1000%. Right. And, and that's exactly it. So, so with that being said, always look forward. What can you do from here on in to do better? Let yesterday go. Yeah, I love that. I think I, I try to be as self-aware as possible. I try to be observant of the things that trigger me. I try to be observant of the things that others do that I would like to do. For example, I'll give you a very basic example. I had a podcast just yesterday with another agent. I walk in and I loved his system. He has a system like a dashboard so, with all of his deals and stuff. So I, I always try to be open to, to learning, to adjusting, to trying new things because I've learned that you don't know what you don't know. And so I really try to work hard to, to be coachable, to do my own thing, to work on my own branding, but be open to learning and trying new things. I've discovered so much value in just trying something new. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work, but I have found treasures just from saying, yeah, I'll try that. Let's, let's give that a shot. And it works. So moving forward, what I would say for myself and anybody listening to this is always be trying to improve in some way. Don't let it cause anxiety. Don't let it make you feel insecure. It doesn't mean that you suck and that it just means that there's always something, always something in your communication and the way you follow up and the way that you interact with buyers or sellers or the way that you interact with your affiliates, with your lenders, your inspectors. There's always something you can do, a resource that you can create, something. Always try to uh, do something new. And as you do that, over time, that, that compounding effect of test and learn, test and learn, will put you miles ahead of so many others that are stuck in their ways and refuse to do anything differently despite struggle, despite trends that they know matter. And they, they're just stuck in their own ways. Love that. Now you got into the topic or led towards the topic I want to get into, which is going to be systems. Being in the position you're in, seeing your track record of how you've gone, I don't believe you're that guy that wakes up at 9 a.m. and just says, hmm, let's check Facebook so I can see what I want to do today based on what's on Facebook. My guess is you have some form of system, some form of procedures, and some form of schedule. So why don't you take us through that? Absolutely. I used to be that guy, by the way. I used to be out for years <laughs> until I realized what we talked about earlier, that your pipeline will dry up and then you'll find yourself in trouble. So, I mean, I, I, I do have a system. I keep it simple. I use a, uh, a system that's called Monday. So Monday we've built boards, we've built automations, we've built all of the communication infrastructure with our team, the people that make our phone calls, our lenders to where we have a one spot, one dashboard where we have all of our clients. And so every day I jump in and yeah, I've got notifications, I've got emails, I've got messages. And so I try to set aside time every single morning to go over every single client, every buyer, every seller. Did we send lists? Did we have showings? Do I have appointments to confirm? So early in the day, it's what am I working on right now? everything, the phone calls, the uh, reports with sellers, all of that early in the day. I try to get that done early in the day. Later in the day, it's current clients, right? So that's where I'm going to have my prospecting. That's where I'm going to do my listing appointments. That's where I'm going to show properties of people that are not under contract. Um, and throughout the day, somewhere in, in the middle, we try to get some content filmed. We might do a podcast like this, but I try to early in the day work on what is in, in my case under contract, what I'm facing right now. 
later in the day, what is kind of in that pipeline and try to keep that filled. Because what happened early on was I would get consumed with my current clients. That would take the entire day and the pipeline would dry up. I would have these closings and then there was nothing else coming in. So now I'm very intentional of always trying to have new business that is kind of churning and waiting to be processed so that we don't have those 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 dry seasons. I try to uh, take time for myself. I try to I, I coach boxing, so I also I also try to give myself those opportunities, whether it's an hour a day or whatever it is. That's kind of my therapy, if you will, just going to a boxing gym. And so to diminish or try to avoid burnout, which I've felt, I'm sure you felt as well. So it's hard to keep a balance, but I that, that's kind of how I see my day and how I try to go about it. Love that, right? And there you go. And that, and that proves the point. You have a system, you have a schedule. And it. I never believe that there's not enough time. I believe that if you run out of time because you didn't put the priorities that you're complaining about first. Right. So, and it's something that took a long time. And now, even myself, I've overstretched myself, right? I've burnt myself out many times. So I've actually, believe it or not, I burnt myself out once in 2018, um, the beginning of 2018, I was so burnt out and fed up. And I thought I was, I blamed the industry, not my actions. And what I did is I quit. I gave up my license, say the hell with it. I didn't immediately even go get a job. I didn't do anything. Just chilled for a second. I literally just stopped working. Yeah. I went in a little bit of a depression. And where I'm going with this is that what I did do though, is I helped my friends, other realtors, um, and I helped them with photography. Cause I mean, as you can tell with the camera that I'm on now, I've always been into the whole studio media thing. And it's part of my background. I was in the marketing business before this. So I had all the equipment. I said, Hey, I can help you with the photos. I can do whatever. And I did a couple for people and whatever. And it was just like, yeah, it's okay. Um, but I was in the process of looking for my own home because I was in the middle of a move. Uh, at the time I started, uh, my home was for sale or it was sold. I was waiting for closing day. And I thought, where am I going to go? So I got one of my uh, buddies to help me. It was a 90 day process. So I passed the 90 day mark. I mean, 90 day from uh, when I quit the business. Um, and I'll tell you why it's relevant in a minute. It's um, so what happened was that we went looking for a home and we found a few and I wanted to offer, right? And I was saying, no, they're overpriced. That's overpriced. I go, and right now in 2018, we took a bit of a dip. It almost looked like we were having that crash. Government changed so many policies that, and they changed it too quickly. They changed one policy and it wasn't looking like it was helping. So they changed another policy to make, you know, to bash it again. But what ended up happening is by the time they changed the second policy, the first policy started actually working. Oh. But now when they added the second one, they put the downward spiral ah. in turbo. Yeah. And um, what ended up happening is it was a small window of opportunity. It was a 90-day opportunity. So at this point in time, we're in that opportunity. People haven't realized it yet. And I'm like, hey, let's put an offer on this. Yeah, well, what do you want to offer? It's 590. Let's offer 550. It's been on the market for four days. They're not going to take that. Yeah, but they're not going to get the 590. Nah, you know what? You've been out for a while. Maybe you don't know the market. I don't know. <laughs> Mark my words, they're not getting it. They may not take my offer because they may not realize they're not getting it yet. But uh, let's give it a try. Okay. And of course, you know, you're nuts. You're crazy. You know, because I would uh, listen in. I'd be there and I was listening into the other agent. What is this guy crazy? What is he nuts? You know what I mean? Like, uh, I go, no, no, tell him if he wants it. You know, he's got to get do better. All right. And you know what? I was kind of half liking the house. You know what? Nah, tell him to keep it. Then I go to another house. Same thing. I look at it. And the person was thinking about it. And says, give us a week 
And if we don't sell it at the price you want, we'll take yours. I'm like, what is that? Right? Like, I don't know. I keep that too. Then I thought the other one's still on the market. They just did a price drop, but a price drop of 10K. And I said, okay, <laughs> I won't go back at 550. They dropped 10K. I go up 10K. So now we're like 20K closer kind of thing, <laughs> right? Like we're just, we're closer. So it's not so bad, right? She uh, didn't answer right away. Then she came back and um, she was talking and says, okay, come up five more grand and I'll consider that. Then all of a sudden I got a call. Now we sold it. Somebody else got in and they gave him a better offer and they just took it. So I'm like, son of a bitch, <laughs> <laughs> right? So then there was another place that happened to be, uh, and it was a little, it was overpriced again. This one, I have a little bit of buyer's remorse. And here's, when she listed at 599900 it wasn't worth it because we were in a downturn, not because the house itself wasn't worth it. I see. Right? So it was that downturn, but I knew that overall in general, that market, that house was worth a lot more than what she was asking, but I was going to push my luck anyways. So I went in again, 540 and you know, this guy's nuts. I don't need to sell it. I'll do him a favor. I'll give him $3,000 off. Otherwise screw off. Right. And I'm listening to the conversations on the phone with them. Right. <laughs> so, you know, my friend, uh, you know, the, who was helping me with it as you know, he's the licensed one and, you know, it says, okay, we're going to go on a conference call. Not knowing that I was already there, but we had to go through the motion. Can't say that I was listening in. Yeah. Right. So then we, we go on this call, whatever. And she's telling me I'm nuts. I'm stupid. I'm crazy. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. So anyways, all the stuff. And then, uh, what happens after that, I walk away from that house and this is where the buyer's remorse comes in is that I was right. She actually got lower than what I offered. No, because I forgot to mention I did come up, but she got lower than what I came up from. I was right, but that was five months yeah. down the road. Oh, no. At the time, I'm homeless, right? I mean, so I couldn't yeah. wait five months for this. I now, I was living with my sister, so I wasn't totally homeless, but I, it, there was not exactly like there was a lot of room for me at my sister's. We made room kind of thing. I understand, yeah. So um, anyway, so what ended up happening from there is I found the new construction project is where I ended up moving. And nothing wrong with it. It was great. But I went from uh, a detached like that to a row home, right? Where there's only four units. But the point is I was attached to four units. Yeah. yeah. And I ended up only saving 50 grand. Oh, yeah. So it's one of those things that I know I did well, right? Like I sold it recently to move into the condo that I'm in now. And I did it because, well, interest rates were going up and I saw the market coming down. So I said, I'm going to cash out so I can reinvest when we uh, peak. Yeah. I... I did the same thing. I, I sold my house in March. Same thing. Yeah. So exactly. So I cashed out. Now the point is I made 200 grand on that house in four uh, years. Wow. That's even after it took a dip. Yeah. If I had sold a few months earlier, I would have got a hundred grand more because that's what it, the last one sold for. <sighs> I wait. I was on the fence. I'm not yeah, going to lie. Yeah. I was on the fence. I wasn't going to, first I was going to sell. Then I wasn't going to sell. Then I went to Florida and I said, ah, while I'm away, I'll uh, think about it. Then I got off the, you know, I went to Florida, I came back, and then that's when they announced another interest rate increase. And I go, uh oh. <laughs> Gotta get out. Gotta get out. Yeah. So I took what I could get, right? And again, I'm still ahead 200. But here's why I say seller's remorse or buyer's remorse. That house that I told you about that I uh, tried to squeeze, the one that the one for 600, and she was gonna do me a favor by giving me three grand off. I was right when I said it was actually worth more. The house next door which was in the same condition, same everything, whatever, sold for 1.2. No. Million. <laughs> oh, I feel you, my friend. It hurt me. It's not my story, and I felt that pinch. Oh. Yeah, and that's why I said me being in the business, I was right. I was right at that time. Everyone kept saying I don't know the market, 
they all got burned. But, but this house I knew was only getting crushed because of the rules, not because the house wasn't worth it. And I knew it was actually worth more than what she was asking for, technically. I, I should, you know, me knowing that and, and saying that in my head, I should have bought that. I might have not even sold it. For, I might have said, forget the investing, whatever. Like I would have invested still because I'm an investor, but I might have just stayed there and that might have been my life home. You know what I mean? Like, because it was a really nice home and it was really bigger than I needed and it was just perfect. It had everything in the backyard was nicely done where we can have people in the backyard. We had a pool. It was like, you know what I mean? Perfect. And yeah, it was just perfect, right? So I, I regretted that one. I didn't hate where I was because I forgot to mention the row house. The house I bought was in a nice community, nice established community is the one that I'm talking about. The house I ended up buying was basically lakefront. Oh, okay. Right? So I had lakefront on one side and I had the escarpment on the other. That's awesome. So it was really good view and it was the up and coming neighborhood where all the hip young people wanted to be, <laughs> right? So it was uh, it, it was a really good area. It worked out. So, I, I did well there. It's just that one of those things yeah. that I should have listened to myself and I knew and I should have just done it. But oh, well, you know what? Part of the life experiences. Yeah, exactly. But that's what will then make you a great agent, right? Because you have that insight to be able to make those observations, make those comments. Sometimes people are going to take them. Sometimes they're not. But you know, if you were to play that back, you would have taken that deal. And so as if you take that experience, say, okay, I want to help people make good deals, then things like that happen and it can truly be life-changing for others. Absolutely. So I want to ask you something like uh, when you got into the business, right? Like, look, you started off a brokerage. I mean, you're very entrepreneurial. Just the fact that you got into the real estate thing, you recognized right away that it wasn't a job. It was a business. And because a lot of times people think, okay, I'm working under another company. It must be a job, but it's not like you're like an independent contractor. So where my point is, that you recognized right away that it was a business. You treated it as a business. You saw it as a business. At what point in time, and, and look, every entrepreneur goes through this where you, sometimes you second guess yourself. You second think yourself and go, am I doing the right thing? Am I in the right place? Why am I doing this? Maybe I should quit. I mean, sometimes there's days I tell myself to quit once every hour on the hour, but obviously I don't. And with that being said, there's always that moment that something happens that you get that feeling that you were looking for. And that I call it an aha moment, but it might not be. But it's sort of that moment where you feel, okay, I'm on the right spot. Maybe I've got work to, you know, still work to do. And I still got places to go, but at least I'm going in the right direction and I'm where I'm supposed to be. What was that moment for you and how did that feel? Yeah. So for me, it was a combination of two things. First of all, when I got let go from the original brokerage, all of that feeling that I was wronged, having conversations with my wife, not knowing kind of what the next step was. Uh, my mother actually she posed a question to me and it was kind of what led me down the path to start my own thing. But she literally said, genuinely, she's like, well, why don't you just start your own brokerage? And I sat there and my first reaction was, no, it's too expensive and I don't know how to do it. And because I was still angry, but in reflecting on that conversation in the weeks that transpired later, I couldn't answer that question. I was like, well, why not? I mean, sure. There are some things that I would need to learn. There's some investment, but I think I can handle that. And so I just started talking to myself about that idea that my mom just immediately said, well, if he doesn't want you to do it with him, just do it yourself. And that's what I did. And I've taken that to heart in other aspects of my life. I'll give you an example. I grew up with a speech impediment. So I came from a very combative household. 
And so when I was a kid, I had a lot of nervous tics. I would blink uncontrollably. I had a very bad stutter. I could not speak. I was that kid. And so I had this idea that I wanted to be a TEDx speaker. And this was during COVID. So I started applying to TEDx events. I get rejected, rejected, rejected. I finally get accepted to one, but it gets shut down because of COVID. So I'm like, ah, oh, I'm never gonna be able to do this. I keep applying, even here locally, I keep applying rejection, rejection, rejection. And so I thought, okay, if nobody is gonna let me speak on their stage, I'm just gonna throw my own event. I'm just gonna do my own TEDx thing. And that's what we did until I found out that organizers can't speak at their own events. But <laughs> <laughs> so it didn't, my master plan didn't work. But even then, I was, we were able to start our own TEDx chapter here in my county that didn't exist before, all based on that idea of why not you? Why not? Why can't you do it yourself? What, what do others have that you don't? It's really just a little bit of knowledge, maybe a little bit of motivation more than you do, but it, it really just comes down to the know-how. And so to answer your question directly, it was, it was in that moment where I started asking myself, why can't I do it? And I didn't have a lot of good answers as to why not. Love it. That was a great answer. Good point, right? That's all right. <laughs> all right. So the next question is going to be, what should a new agent consider when deciding what brokerage to join? Great question. I get this question all the time. And it's, do you like the people that you're going to work with? For me, that's the most important part. Every brokerage is going to tell you they've got training. Every brokerage is, they're all going to tell you we have all the resources and we've got the help and the support and that everyone's going to say the same thing. But if you want to learn this business, you need to attach yourself to mentors and people that will show you the ropes. And if you don't feel comfortable with the people in the room, there, it's going to be very difficult for you to learn from them. So I think it's a combination of those two things. You want to find somewhere where you feel comfortable and somewhere where the people that are there want you to win and they're willing to give you the time of day to train you, allow you to ask questions and just somewhere where you feel comfortable. I mean, you being motivated and feeling happy to go to work every day uh, is an underrated perk that not everybody has. So for new agents, shop around. Don't go with the first person, have multiple interviews, ask questions. And ultimately, if you go somewhere and you feel that it's not working, don't be afraid to try something else. Don't feel that you have to stay there for months and months and months and be unhappy and make no progress because you pick them. Put yourself first, be incredibly selfish in terms of checking your options and ultimately find what is best for you not what's best for the broker that might not even pay attention to you. Great advice. All right. So in light of time, I'm going to ask you two more questions before I go into what I call the lightning round. Sure. So second last question is, how do you know you've had a successful day? Oh, great question. So for me, I'm a very analytical person. So I use my Google tasks uh, and I have my list of things to do and I feel that I need to get through them. And sometimes that makes it where I got to go to bed late but I have my list of things to do. Uh, and I feel that if I can, if I can do that, then I feel like I've had a successful day. Also, if I've had some time, sometimes it's 10 minutes, sometimes it's two hours, but if I've had some time to connect with my wife and my son, if I've worked the whole day, if I didn't see them all day, I didn't talk to them all day, I feel like I failed just a little bit. 
some days, again, it's going to be 10 minutes. Some days you're going to have more time, but um, trying to work towards some sort of balance, if that's even a reality, is something that's important to me. Love it. You're right. And uh, balance is one of those things that is different for everybody. Balance is what makes you comfortable. And it varies from day to day. Some days you're going to have to work 11 hours and then some days you're going to write two emails and you're just going to chill the rest of the day. It, it just depends. You got it. So last but not least is anybody watching this and wants to reach out to you, where would they find you? Absolutely. So I'm on Instagram. That's probably the most active platform. You can find me on all of them, but the most active one is on Instagram. For my personal profile, it's TonyAcosta.us. Also, I also do a lot of like corporate training for public speakers with my experience through TEDx and training speakers and helping with communication. I have a separate profile. It's called, it's at Talk Like Tony that has, that's all about public speaking. That's all about communication. And so either one, feel free to reach out. If I can provide any value to anyone, we're always there. Wonderful. Awesome. So let's get into the lightning round. Just a few uh, fun questions that uh, more on the personal side. First question is going to be, what's your favorite food and why? Oh, my favorite food. I'm a big sushi guy, but not like the raw sushi. I'm more of like a, a shrimp kind of sushi. And I, I love it because it's one of the few foods that doesn't make me feel like crap. I grew up just eating a bunch of junk. And so when I eat sushi, I just feel good. My wife loves it. My son loves it. I have a lot of good memories eating sushi. So my family's a big sushi family. So whenever we're trying to do something, we're going to go have sushi. And that's kind of our thing. Yeah, it's a good, I like it myself. In terms of uh, travel, is going to be the second question. What is your favorite travel spot? So my favorite, my most memorable trip was I took a trip to Bali with my wife about right before the pandemic, probably 2019, 2018. Uh, and that was one of the best trips ever. So if you ever have a chance to go to Bali, beautiful place, beautiful culture, the Indonesian people, uh, I love being at Bali. Everything about it, the food, no complaints. And a dollar over there goes a long way. So it's actually much more affordable than you would think to go to Bali versus other places. And so if you ever have a chance to make it to Indonesia, go to Bali. Wonderful. All right. Question number three is favorite podcast and or book. Ooh, favorite podcast and or book that, oh, so many. Uh, I think it, it depends what, I, what, what mood I'm in. For example, I'm a big sports junkie. So I love sports, The Herd with Colin Cowherd. I, I listen to sports. When we talk about books, uh, one of my favorite books of all time that I recommend everybody reads is a book called Crucial Conversations. Uh, and it's just about having difficult conversations. I fundamentally believe that in many of our cases, we're three to seven difficult conversations away from a whole new level of happiness. And so Crucial Conversations shows how to have some of those tough, emotional often combative conversations in an effective manner. Got it. Got it. All right. Last but not least is if you were given unlimited amount of money and you had 48 hours to spend it, what you spend, you get to keep what you don't gets taken away. What would you do? Oh, that is such a great question. I would spend it on experiences. 48 hours. I would take my entire family take everyone and we would just we would just go whether either it's on a cruise. I love cruises. I'm a big cruise guy, but I would spend it on memories and experiences with my family. I would go to the most amazing place, no limitations, eat the best food, view the best places. Uh, that's what I would do, and I would be able to keep those those memories without a doubt. I would jump on a plane and go somewhere. That has to be the best answer to date. Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> Love it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I, I found that uh, even throughout the whole, uh, you know, podcast here, we have a lot of uh, similarities in terms of the way we think, right? Because th- your answer would probably have been my answer as well. Yeah, without a doubt. It's a very enjoyable show. I loved it. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you having me. I know there are millions of people that you could talk to, and the fact that I get to sit here with you for an hour and just share with, with your audience just fills me with joy. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. To be honest, I could I could talk all day yeah. if, I, if, I, if time wasn't such a restricted thing. <laughs> without a doubt. Without a doubt. But I'd love to connect with you further. So I appreciate Absolutely. you having me on your show. For sure, man. All right. If you like what you saw and you want to see some more, subscribe to the link below. Thanks for tuning in to the John Papaloni Show.